0: Well, we've almost come to the end of Jonah's tale. Uh, Today we are looking at the second to last scene, beginning with the last chapter of the book. So that'll be Jonah 4, 1 through 4. I didn't get the information to Danny early enough this week, so it's not on the notes sheet. But if you'd like to turn and follow along, it's Jonah chapter 4, the first four verses. This is God's holy word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew... That you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Grant to us, O Lord, your Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above. So that your word may not be bound, but may have free course, being proclaimed to our joy and edification. We ask this through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I still remember a great piece of advice I got from one of my favorite professors in college. He taught several of our humanities courses, and we were talking about music. And he said, if you ever go to the symphony or any kind of concert where they're playing classical music... Never be the first person to clap, because I don't know if you've been to the symphony or a concert where they've played classical music, but it's common for there to be false endings. So the musicians will kind of quiet down, it seems like the song is over, and then someone starts clapping, but the song isn't over, the musicians pick back up again, and that person feels really embarrassed. So my professor was trying to save us the embarrassment of being that first clapper. He didn't want us to fall prey to any false endings. And the same is true for us, for the story of Jonah, because where we left off last week would be a great place to end the story, it seems. The evil that prompted God to send Jonah to Nineveh has been ceased, at least for the moment. God has relented from the judgment that he threatened against the city, so all is well in Nineveh. God's wrath has been turned aside in his mercy, and this would be a perfect time to insert and everybody lived happily ever after. But that's not what we find. The story of Jonah continues. The author isn't done yet. In fact, he's not even to his main point yet. So, today, we continue our tale examining the penultimate scene of the book of Jonah, listening in to the conversation that takes place between God and his wayward prophet. And the opening words of this scene really shift the mood from where we left off in verse 3. Because again, everything was going well at the end of chapter 3. God relented of the disaster. He threatened a whole city full of human beings and their animals have been spared. And Jonah finds this to just be unacceptable. The Hebrew literally says the thing was evil to Jonah, a great evil. This phrasing not only gives us a window into Jonah's mindset, so we can see his reaction to God's mercy, but it also gives us another chance to appreciate the author's brilliant storytelling. Because you'll remember the way the author has used that word evil in chapter 3 and how he uses it now in chapter 4. In the previous scene, the king decreed that the people would cease from their violence and from their evil— In response, Yahweh mercifully relented from the evil that he had planned for them, and now Jonah sees that mercy as a great evil. So every character has been turning away from evil and relinquishing it and setting it aside, but now Jonah is steeped in evil. He is simmering with the evil of his own anger and disappointment and probably sore pride because He wasn't only displeased because Israel's enemies were alive and well, but he's also been made to look like a fool because he thought he knew what God's word meant when he proclaimed it. He thought he knew what he was saying when he called out to the Ninevites, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. But he didn't realize that God was a punster. Jonah thought he was saying 40 days and Nineveh is going to be annihilated, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But overturn, as we discussed, can, and did in this case, mean repent. So, for these reasons, Jonah is angry. His enemies are alive, and he had to see see God's mercy in sparing them, and also he has been made to look like a fool. And here the irony shines brighter than maybe anywhere else in the book, because it was God's mercy in saving Jonah from the fish, that even kept him alive to this point. But now, with his life restored to him, he is angry with God's mercy. Jonah even confessed in the belly of the fish that salvation belongs to Yahweh, but now that God has exercised his saving power, Jonah wishes that salvation belonged to him, because he wouldn't have given it to the Ninevites. He would have been quick to anger, and he would not have spared his enemies as God had spared his enemies. Jonah should have been thankful and full of praise just to be a witness to the amazing mercy of God. But instead, as verse one makes very clear to us, he was angry. So while Yahweh's wrath has been abated, Jonah's wrath is just starting to kindle and burst into flame. And it's out of this great displeasure and anger that Jonah issues his second prayer of our story, which we find in verses two and three. And now it becomes clear which previous scene, this one parallels. You'll remember a lot of the scenes in the second half of the book have mirror scenes from earlier. And Jonah 4, 1 through 4, is a mirror of Jonah 2. In both scenes, Jonah is praying. In both scenes, he's praying from a place of danger. Here, he's still in Nineveh. In chapter 2, he was still in the belly of the fish. But in this scene, it's Jonah's anger that prompts him to pray, rather than his fear and his desire for his life. And instead of asking something of God, as he did in chapter 2, here he's giving God a piece of his mind. And this is what he says. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So, first, that opening exclamation, O Lord... If we were the original audience, or if you're familiar with your Bible, you would expect for that uh, to be followed by uh, a passionate, pious plea for help, not a complaint that we find here. We get a rhetorical question full of attitude from Jonah, and his question reveals not only again his attitude, but also apparently some earlier conversation had taken place earlier on in the narrative that we didn't hear as the audience. Jonah claims that earlier he had told God he knew what was going to happen all along. He says that he predicted all of this back at the beginning of the story. And this is essentially Jonah's big, I told you so. Which is a rather risky rhetorical move to make when you're talking to God, I would think. But in any case, Jonah next gives us an answer to the question that we've had since the very first week. Why did Jonah flee when he was told to go to Nineveh. Well, according to the prophet himself, he disobeyed his commission because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah says that it was because he knew what kind of God Yahweh was that he disobeyed him, which is not what we would expect, but that's, that's Jonah's reasoning here. He fled from the Lord's presence because he said he knew God was going to spare the Ninevites in his mercy, and he didn't want to see that happen. Now, the divine attributes that Jonah lists here are taken from a very similar passage in Exodus 34, and there are other times that a very similar formula appears in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Joel 2 are a few more examples But the way Jonah quotes that common formula here shows that he would like God better if God were stingier with his merciful attributes and a little more generous with his attributes of justice. Because Jonah says that God is gracious, he shows favor to the ill-deserving. Jonah says God is merciful, showing compassion rather than wrath. He's slow to anger. Unlike Jonah, he doesn't burst into fits of rage at a moment's notice. God is abounding in steadfast love, and finally, God is one who relents from disaster. But Jonah leaves out the part of the original Exodus quote, where where God tells Moses that he is not one who pardons the wicked, the guilty. So he leaves out the part about God's justice, which is Jonah's way of implying that God is kind and patient to the point of injustice. So from Jonah's sinfully skewed perspective, God's compassion outweighs his justice to the point that his goodness, his very essence as divine being and perfection are in danger. And as much as this upset him, Jonah said that he had a sneaking suspicion all along that because God was merciful, the Ninevites would be spared. And that's why he fled, because he didn't want to see that happen. And Apparently, he was right. His suspicion is confirmed. God had mercy. Now, having heard this first part of Jonah's prayer, we're given answers to a lot of the questions that the author has been leaving unanswered so far. Again, why did Jonah flee? Why was he sleeping in the cargo hold uh, during the great storm? Why did he so eagerly offer himself to be thrown overboard? All of those questions are answered with what Jonah says in verse 2. He couldn't bear the thought of Israel's enemies receiving mercy rather than the justice that they deserved. But one question is not really answered exactly by Jonah's admission in verse 2. It requires a bit more thought, which is, why did Jonah accept the commission the second time around? What was different about chapter 3 when God came to him and told him what to do than in chapter 1? Well, remember when we talked about that scene, we saw that Yahweh gave Jonah the exact words to say when he reached Nineveh. He gave him the exact words. He said, call out against it the message that I tell you. So we saw last week that that message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. And again, Jonah must have interpreted that prophecy as a prophecy of destruction. So his fear that he expressed in verse 2 that God would be merciful to the Ninevites, which is why he fled in the first place, that fear was alleviated because he thought in chapter 3 God was telling him that he was going to destroy Nineveh. So he's like, okay, now that you know, you've told me what the prophecy is, I'll go, I'd love to see, see that and be a part of it. But Jonah was mistaken. Nineveh was overturned, as God said, but not in the sense that Jonah expected. They were overturned in repentance which greatly upset Jonah. So, in this scene, Jonah has propped himself up sort of as Yahweh's spiritual supervisor, and he gives him a very poor performance review. God is much too free with his mercy, and he doesn't treat the Ninevites as they deserve to be treated. So he's running the risk of losing his justice and righteousness. Now... Compared to his earlier prayer in chapter 2, at least that prayer appeared to be a good one on the surface, even though we were able to detect what was missing. This prayer, however, is blatantly problematic. Yet the problems don't stop there. We read on in verse 3 Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Jonah is expressing a death wish of a certain kind, almost a passive suicide. He's not going to kill himself, but he asks God to kill him because of the reasons he's said so far. All of what he's said in his prayer has been his complaining that has been building up to this request. And now he finally makes the request, asking God to kill him. His anger is saying, I've had enough of this. I'm done being your prophet. I'm done being your pawn. Just kill me now. Jonah reasons, it's better for me to die than to live. Again, bringing us back to Jonah's forgetfulness He has experienced God's mercy, but now he can't appreciate that very mercy when it's exercised for the benefit of someone else. Because God is so gracious and compassionate, Jonah wishes to die. But Jonah's only alive because of those very attributes. You'll remember in the fish's belly, Jonah was knocking on death's door. He was using all of this language about Sheol, the place of the dead, Now he's alive, but apparently he would rather die. He wishes God never rescued him from the fish's belly. All of this sort of reminds me of a great song from the musical Les Miserables. I don't know if anyone's a Les Mis fan. Um, I'm a huge Les Mis fan. I probably listen to it at least three or four times a year. Cassidy can verify. Um, And just to set the scene for this song, I'm about to quote, if you don't know the story, one of the main characters, the antagonist, His name is Javert. He's a police officer. He's all about the law and duty, and he's been hunting this man, Valjean, who is his arch nemesis and the protagonist of the story. And by a series of events, it turns out that Javert has found himself imprisoned by the good guys. And Valjean has the opportunity to kill him. But instead, he decides to cut his ropes instead of his throat. He lets Javert go. He has mercy. On the man who never would have had mercy on him if the tables were turned. And this act of mercy causes such turmoil in Javert that he sings these words. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> so don't, don't get your hopes up. Uh, who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have me caught in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, wipe out the past, And wash me clean off the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his, and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the dead of a thief. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There's nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. I should have perished by his hand. It was his right. It was my right to die as well. Instead, I live, but live in hell. I'm reaching, but I fall. The stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There's nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go on. And as he sings those final words, he throws himself off of a bridge into a rushing river because he, ju- he just can't imagine a world with both he and Valjean alive, and so he takes his own life. Well, like Javert, Jonah seems to be seeing things in an absolutely black-and-white dichotomy and thus issues this ultimatum to God. Either destroy Nineveh or destroy me. And since you've chosen to spare Nineveh, kill me now. This has been a very dramatic prayer that Jonah has prayed, expressing the sinful depths of his heart, but God's response demonstrates that even though Jonah confessed these attributes about him in anger, they are nevertheless true, especially the fact that God is slow to anger. Because he might have granted Jonah's wish. He could have struck him dead right there on the spot. Jonah certainly deserved that level of response from the Lord. But instead, God simply asks him a question and leaves him to ponder his answer. God asks, is it right for you? to be angry about this. So, we'll leave Jonah to think about that and pick up with him in a couple of weeks. But in terms of what we should learn for our story this week, we'll actually turn to the New Testament. If you'd like to turn there with me, Matthew 20, we're going to look at one of Jesus's parables that gets to the heart of what Jonah is guilty of in this scene. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Again, it's found in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Again, this is the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers for the standard wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When it was about nine o'clock in the morning, he went out again and saw others standing around in the marketplace without work. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and three o'clock that afternoon, he did the same thing. And about five o'clock that afternoon, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, Why are you standing here all day without work? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go and work in my vineyard, too. When it was the evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and pay them their wages, starting with the last hired until the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each received a full day's pay. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one also received the standard wage. When they received it, they began to complain against the landowner, saying, These last fellows worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who bore the hardship and burning heat of the day. And the landowner replied to one of them, "Friend, I'm not treating you unfairly. Did you not agree with me to work for the standard wage? Take what is yours and go. I want to give this last to this last man the same as I gave to you. Am I not permitted to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous?" So, the last will be first. And the first, last. So both scene six of Jonah that we've just gone over and this parable of Jesus in Matthew 20 are lessons about spiritual pride. We've seen throughout the book of Jonah that things are not as we expect. The author likes to play around with our expectations and flip things upside down. The most obvious one being the way Jonah acts as God's prophet. We would expect him to act well, but he's acted badly the whole story. And all of the Gentile pagans, who we would expect to be poor actors, have acted well. So it's a book full of surprises. And after finishing the parable, Jesus says we should expect the same on the day of judgment. The last will be first, and the first will be last. In other words, many who have all the advantages of covenant membership and special revelation, just like Jonah, will be revealed as spiritual lasts and rejected. But many persons whom the spiritually proud view as lost causes will be revealed as spiritual firsts and received into the consummated kingdom of God. These two stories teach us also about the rewards that we can expect from God. Because this parable of the vineyard workers is part of Jesus' response to Peter's question in Matthew 19. Peter said, look, we've left everything for you. What then will there be for us? Jesus first answered with a bit of encouragement. He said, whoever has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So that's a word of encouragement to those who make sacrifices to follow the Lord. But these are simply the standard cost of discipleship, leaving behind the things of the world to follow the Lord and the standard reward of new life in the new creation. These are not special sacrifices that earn special rewards. And so, lest we think that, Jesus gives this second answer to Peter in the form of the parable we just read. It's a warning that spiritual pride is immensely dangerous. The one who is proud of his spiritual fruit, of his spiritual labors, of the progress in sanctification that he has made, thinking that he owes it to his own hard work, is in a very precarious position with the Lord. Scene 6 of Jonah teaches a similar lesson because Jonah was proud. He was proud to be an Israelite. He was probably even proud to be a prophet, even though he was not doing a very good job of that. And most importantly, he was proud not to be a wicked Ninevite. And it was Jonah's spiritual pride that caused him to have such an angry reaction to seeing the Lord's mercy extended to those he viewed as his enemies. In his eyes, the Ninevites did not deserve the compassion and loving kindness that God showed them. But Jonah did, he thought. Jonah is in an exceedingly precarious position, having placed himself in judgment over the judge of the universe. He would do well to heed Jesus' warning through this parable and humble himself third both Jonah 4 and Matthew 20 remind us once more and most importantly of the amazing grace of God spiritual lasts become spiritual firsts not by their own effort not by their good works not even by their tears of repentance but because they have received the favor of a merciful God A God who invites them into his vineyard, even in the final moments of sunlight, to only work a little bit and then pays them a full day's wages as though they had worked from the beginning of the day. A God who is well aware of their wickedness and their sin, and yet relents from the judgment that they deserve, instead offering eternal life and salvation. It is this same Lord who is ours, brothers and sisters. He has had mercy on us. When all we deserved was destruction. And whether we've been covenant members since birth, like Jonah, laboring in the field from the very beginning of the day, from the crack of dawn, or whether we are new to the community of faith. Only invited to the vineyard a few hours before dusk, we have no right to be proud. We must cast our spiritual pride aside in recognition that the master can do what he wants with what is his. What he gives, he gives graciously. He owes us nothing. God doesn't answer to Jonah. He doesn't answer to you or me. He is sovereign. Salvation belongs to him. And again, like the master of the vineyard, he has every right to do what he wants with what is his. And we have no right to question him. And we certainly have no right to be angry with him because of his generosity. But friends, the sin that remains with us tempts us often to prop ourselves up and look down on others. And there are several reasons this happens. Whatever we can come up with to put ourselves in a higher position and to feel proud of ourselves. But that's why we constantly need to hear the gospel and be reminded that we really have no high ground to stand on. We are spiritual lasts who have been made spiritual first, not by anything we've done. And we were wicked sinners who have been granted new life, righteousness, only in Christ, and only by God's mercy. So, let's meditate on those thoughts, humble ourselves, and trade in our proud, angry self-righteousness whenever it comes up in our hearts for grateful humility. And let's pray for the Lord's help in doing so, because it is not an easy task. Our God and Father, we thank you for who you are For your character, you are a gracious God and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And you are just. Help us not to grow angry with you or who you are when our sinful desires don't line up with your wise plans. Transform us by your spirit to be more like your son, who not only desired the salvation of all kinds of people, but accomplished it. Make our hearts glad to be witnesses to your grace and mercy, not only in our lives, but in the lives of everyone around us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.